You are listening to episode number 73, Betrayal Trauma Recovery. Thanks for joining me on the LDS Divorce Coach Podcast, where I take the sting out of divorce. This is your host, Emily Sanchez. Hey everybody, how you doing out there? Thank you so much for coming and listening. I really am happy to have you today. Today's topic is super important. As you heard from the title, it's all about betrayal trauma recovery. And so this topic needed to be addressed. I had not addressed it fully yet, and I'm grateful that I got a few emails of some incredible stories. And those stories are hard to tell. And today I have a couple of guests. One is Kiri, and you will hear her story of what it's like to struggle through the difficulties on hardships and what she describes as devastation of being married to a spouse who is a pornography addict and where she found hope and healing. And we're also joined with a mental health counselor, Kimberly Day, and she is from the Worth program. Worth is an organization out of the life-changing services that uh, all of the principles are based on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So the life-changing services have outlets for young men, men, single, married, whatever, uh, groups and therapists, all dealing with pornography, use, and addiction. And then the WORTH program is specifically for the spouses of the pornography user or sex addict, sex, sexual addiction. And so the cool thing about WORTH is when you join, you'll be able to attend the first six months of therapist-facilitated groups at no cost. And Kim will talk a little bit more about WORTH. And then I will also, in the show notes, give you some links so that you can look it up. But it's an amazing program, and I'm grateful to be introduced to it. I've also decided to make this two podcasts because... It's a little lengthy, so by dividing it in two, you can take it in breaks because it's it's really important. And I am really hoping that we can reach some listeners who can relate to this and find that hope that there is. So without further ado, here is Kiri and Kim. Okay, thank you so much, um, Kim and Kiri, for joining me today um, for the time and the bravery, the courage, and I'm just so grateful that you will be sharing your story and your resources to help others out. So thank you again and welcome. So I'm going to go ahead and ask um, Kimberly Day, first of all, to lead us out in in this topic of what she does, some resources that she can give out to people. And, and Kim, I'm just going to let you start here by introducing our topic today and, and the resources out there. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Emily. Thanks for letting me come on and talk about this. I think it's a really important topic to, to just bring awareness to because, um, and I guess I'll give you a little bit of background to start with. I work with women uh, primarily right now that are married to partners that are involved in pornography addiction and sexual addiction. And there has been a shift in our industry in the last, I'd say maybe 15 or so years to bring to light this 
this population of of individuals who are really suffering. Historically, pornography addiction has been treated from a medical model where the individual who's involved in pornography is the identified patient and all the focus goes on that person and helping them to recover. And everybody involved in their life is seen as either helping or hindering that process. Yeah. And we see the same thing even in our church where it, it, when you go to the bishop, it's this, this is the lost sheep or the prodigal son. And what they need is more love and more support. And I don't disagree with that. I love that there is that foundation of compassion and trying to, trying to, to, to not shame that individual and give them the support they need. But what has happened is everybody else involved in the system has been made invisible and they're either contributing to the problem or make, and there's been a lot of shame shifted from the addict or the person involved in the, uh, the pornography use to the partner. And this has been really, it's been really destructive for partners. And so about 15 years ago, there has been, there was some research done by Barbara Steffens and she found that um, 70% of partners were ex would qualify for the diagnosis of PTSD. Seventy mm. percent, um, and later studies have verified that, or even suggested that that number is even higher. And mm. so, so often, so often, the partners get the message that they're that they're oversensitive, that there's something wrong with them. If they have a problem with it, it's them, and they feel very, very isolated. They feel very, feel very alone, um, very despondent, and there's a whole. Uh, it's pervasive the impact on partners and they don't have a resource to reach out to and they don't have language to talk about their experiences. Mm -hmm. But um, that is the norm. Of course, the message often is, is everybody else is okay with this or look how common it is. Porn pornography use is most men use pornography. And that, that is true, but that message is used to, to silence and to minimize the partner's experience. What this research found was that the partner's experience was dramatic. Everything from nightmares, any, any and all kinds of sleep issues, dissociation, depression, suicidality, anxiety, intrusive thoughts, cognitive impairment, hypervigilance. They were having flashbacks. It was damaging their self-esteem, their self-image, their creativity, their spontaneity, their ability to feel the spirit even. Mm. They were struggling with difficulty trusting, intrusive memories or preoccupation with these thoughts, feelings of threat, reactivity. I could go on and on, panics, attacks, mm. mood swings. There was a lot of sexual trauma, a lot of sexual injury being experienced, mm. even physical symptoms. This would manifest for partners physiologically. Of course. Um, attachment wounds. And that's just with the, uh, the addiction component. There was also a lot of abuse that was taking place within the relationships and partners were being silenced and they didn't have, they didn't have a place to share their story. They were told this isn't yours to share. You keep your mouth shut so that, that, that you don't want to shame the addict. You can't speak up. You can't ask for help because you're not, you're not the identified patient. It's him. Mm -hmm. And it goes the same way where sometimes it's a woman who's addicted and men get the same thing. But more, more often right now, it's the, it's the men that are addicted and the women as partners who are going through this incredibly traumatic event. Over 50% of 
the individuals that were studied in this particular study, these symptoms were moderately to moderate severe to extremely severe. So these issues that they were having were persistent, they were pervasive, and they were intense, and they went over many different modalities. It was, they were, it was manifesting physically, emotionally, cognitively, they were having cognitive, cognitive impairment issues, and sexually, and there hasn't been acknowledgement of that part. So in the last, I would say about 15 years since this study was done, there has been a shift in the industry to bring to light the experience of the partner and to make a, a resources available to her for her own healing. And so that's what I do. And that is what I love. And that's what I'm here to talk about. Sorry if that was a too long of an introduction. Not at all. And as you were talking, wow, it took me back. It took me back 18, 19 years ago, whatever it's been now. I, you know, I don't share my own story very often, but in a nutshell, it was not pornography addiction. It was another addiction, but it sure was, I, I was neglected. I was silent. I was alone. And, and back then there was a support group called Al-Anon. That's the AA support group for family um, members, friends and family members of addicts. And it was all about just staying and kind of remaining silent and just dealing with their addiction and that we kind of had to be okay with that. And I was not okay with that. And I even remember going to a therapist and just, you know, trying to tell them what I was experiencing. And he just was like, Emily, you don't need a therapist. You're fine. Oh. And I was like, really? Oh, okay, but I'm having these feelings and there's really no one that, you know. So back then, there was not <laughs> the support. There was not the, those groups. And that's partly why I became a divorce coach in different um, functions to just be a support, to help and help people know that they have a future and that it can be strong and they can work through the triggers. As you talked about it, there is a post-traumatic concept to that, that that's real because I experienced that when dating other men. Yes. And so, and then you have the pornography on top of it. And as members of the church, it is a spiritual component that it adds a layer of something different than other addictions. And that is in itself tough to to deal with so can you tell us a little bit about um the organization now that you work with and and how you got affiliated with them yeah um i want to touch on something you just said here really okay. quickly because i really appreciate you sharing just a little bit because there i am so sorry to hear that that was your experience <laughs> and i'm even more sorry that it's really really common so yeah. common where there's a name for it it's called treatment-induced trauma. When people who are in, in pain and who are suffering go, and usually it's partners, go to a therapist and they get the message that it's not a big deal. Or they get messages, and this is specifically for maybe sexual addiction, but they get the message that they just need to have sex with their partner more. Or they need to make uh, not make it such a big deal. Um, all of those false messages about 
your voice doesn't matter. Your experience doesn't matter. Your pain doesn't matter. Foundationally, that's what is being communicated when you go to a therapist for help because you're in pain and you that get these type of messages or you are even to blame or you're doing something wrong because you're not, because your partner is an addict because of what they're doing. And so that treatment-induced trauma is really common with partners of any form of addict. And so, so much so that when I received training, it was addressed in and of itself. So there are organizations now that are dedicated to educating practitioners, counselors, coaches. One of these organizations trains coaches on working with partners, and they have a certification process. Um, that one organization is called APSATS. It's for the Association of Partners of Sex Addict Trauma Specialists. So that, that is APSATS, okay. and they have a certification process. So if you're looking for a, and what they call this is a partner-sensitive or a trauma-sensitive counselor or coach. And so they, they work from a different model, where they work from a trauma model versus the traditional addiction model where partners are just seen as either helping or hindering the addict. So it's a, it's a little bit of a paradigm shift from what traditionally has been the approach when working with any form of addicts. They recognize the need to support and to not shame the addict, but they also recognize that what the partner is experiencing is trauma in that, and they support and applaud her or his own healing. So ABSATS is one organization that has a certification process. ADDO Recovery, A-D-D-O, also has a whole network of, of counselors and clinicians that they train from that partner-sensitive approach and, and, and a trauma-sensitive sensitive approach. The organization I work for is called WORTH, and we work, we, we're in a company called Life Changing Services. We're one branch of that, and we work from a, uh, from a gospel foundation based on the principles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we also, all of our therapists in the WORTH program, work from a trauma and a, a partner-sensitive lens. Okay, yeah. I love it. And WORTH is an acronym, correct? What yeah. does it stand for? <laughs> of rebirth. Rebirth and therapeutic healing. I, I love that. Women of rebirth and therapeutic healing. Oh man, I love it. So with with that therapeutic healing, let's go into real life here. Let's go into the healing of, of you, Kiri, if you're okay with that. And um, again, thank you for sharing and being willing to share your story. So I'm just going to turn the time over. Well, that sounded really LDS, didn't it? <laughs> but... <laughs> And the benediction will be followed by. Yeah, just give you the floor here and, and tell, us, tell us some of your story and how you met Kim. Okay, yeah. I'm so grateful to be here. I mean, I don't know if your listeners know, but we go way back, Emily, right? Because I send you nasty emails and then you're super nice to me and invite me here. So I'm really grateful for this opportunity. And um, yeah, it takes a lot of courage. So I think what you do all the time and what Kim does takes more courage than what I'm doing right now. Um, so I guess, so how do I know Kim? I started worth, I don't know, about a year and a half ago. And actually I had a different therapist originally, 
but she needed Kim to cover one day. And when Kim was on, I was like, I need to go to Kim's group. So I oh. was making calls. Can I join your group? <laughs> and um, they let me. So Kim how did I not know this, Carrie? <laughs> I didn't know this. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really, I feel very privileged. I, I love Kim. Um, and she has a lot of experience and um, a lot of information on this. Mm -hmm. So I'm still learning. I still, I still um, meet in a group with Kim. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my story of how I met her. What do you want me to, what do you want to touch on? Let's start when your story of getting married and um, wherever you want to start there, uh, discovering the addiction, discovering what, what that really felt like. And then the process of uh, his recovery versus your own. And so let's kind of start at the the foundation of you getting into a marriage and what you thought that would be. Okay. Yeah. So um, I like to say that like many pioneer women before me, I got married fast and young. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, we actually technically we're still married. It's been almost 10 years where we filed. We're just in the process. Okay. And we have four daughters together. Mm -hmm. um, and I will say, I'll just, I'll jump right into it when when I met and was dating my husband, he actually, he was transparent with me. I knew that he had um, a pornography addiction. And actually, I'm pretty certain that he used that word addiction, mm. which, you know, and that was of his own volition. It was almost like he even explained some of the depths of it as if to say, no, I have a problem. I, I have a problem. Um, so I guess I want to look back and I see that as kind of a sacred ground, you know, where he, I don't think he was trying to deceive me when we entered this relationship. Um, and at the time he was in a program and he actually had a counselor. Um, what I will say, so all that being said, I'll say that I don't think either he or I could have anticipated, you know, the turmoil and the hell that we were going to go through. Mm. Um, and I, I think that truly I, I couldn't have anticipated the war that was going to be waged on my soul. I think it had, had been waged on his soul a long time ago, but it was now being waged on my soul. And so it wasn't just one event, you know, it was this, this beginning that had many different layers. You know, it's funny, I, I think about in the recovery world of sex addicts and betrayed partners, we use the term D-Day a lot. Yes, uh, I've heard that. Yeah, so I mean, maybe yeah. you want Kim to touch on it now too. It's, it's called Discovery Day. Kim, explain D-Day. I'm thinking of World War II here. And that's, <laughs> isn't that what it feels like? It, it does. There are a lot of similarities. A lot of, it's a, it is appropriate to way of labeling it. Uh, and everybody's experience of that is a little different. Um, I, I'll let Carrie explain hers. But the idea essentially, essentially is that is that's when the discovery of this secret life or these lies or what has really been happening is brought to light. And very, it's, it's very traumatic. And most women who have, uh, who, who refer to it that way, they talk about a shattering where the, the reality that they thought they had, the life that they thought they had, the safety they thought they had is, is shattered. And it's like the rug is pulled out from under them. And they uh, are trying to make sense of what this new reality means for them. And there, it usually takes some time to come to grips and to find your grounding, find your footing again, and get grounded again in, in a completely new reality that you didn't even think that you were involved in. Everybody's experiences of, of anyway, I'm going to let Kiri, she has a beautiful way of explaining it 
on her own, so I'm going to let her go. My, my story is a little weird. I think I was trying to reconcile. I was trying to make sense of this for myself because even recently, it's kind of been bothering me. I just feel like I've heard so many stories, so many courageous women share their stories, and I can't, there's like this disconnect. And I finally was able to put my finger on it for me. I don't relate to D-Day because I think because of that beginning, because there was that transparency. But the other thing was in my, my mind doesn't denote, you know, D-Day as a beginning as a, and an end for these other women. For me, it was like the period of time where this dynamic in our relationship um, wasn't is very brief. You know, it was, it was almost like it was always there. So in my brain, it's like this always was. I can't even remember the initial, and I'll use the word introduction, I guess. I, I don't remember discovering. Mm. And I think even he could go back and say, Here, here's this, what, this is what happened. But for me, it was so common. It was so frequent that I look back and I think I, there's no one D-Day. This was my life. Mm. And I don't know if that makes sense. So I think I had to reconcile. Like For me, it's not like D-Day was this historic event where my life changed. It was like we were right on that path. And we, mm -hmm. this is where I lived, like this zone. And I guess, you know, it's kind of, um, like I said, it's kind of nuanced. I feel like there's layers. So for me, there was so many discoveries. You know what I mean? It was years of finding out information. And even to this day, I wouldn't say that I have all the information. So in some ways, I have a disconnect where it wasn't like we discovered and then poof, we were in recovery. It was like, this was the way our life was. I always found out. And then what I'll say happened with me in this process was that and this is where I relate to that shattering. It was like I became a different person and I was very afraid. I lived in this cycle of hypervigilance and I would anticipate when he was going to act out. I'd always feel that disconnection and I would be afraid of that. I just felt like I, I never knew what was real because there was, because this really wasn't safety, if that makes sense. Like this pattern where he would betray and then I would find out. Mm. It so much instability for me internally. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's, I mean, I, um, I think this is a portion that I missed some of the audio on. Sorry, Kim. But I think she was trying to touch on that. Maybe she mentioned the complex PTSD. And I feel like I did experience that. That was, that was like my zone. I lived in that for maybe eight years of our marriage. We yep. would just cycle. You know what I mean? And I, to me, I relate it to an abuse cycle, and I don't know how familiar you are with that, but in the sense of there was a betrayal, and then there'd be some kind of reconciliation, but you'd go around and around. And for me, and you have to forgive me, but this funny little phrase came to mind for me, you know, um, he would act out, I would find out, and then we'd make out. And this was the cycle. Oh, and I have to laugh cool. a little bit at myself, but I mean, there's some real pain in there, but I can laugh about that. Like this was the cycle and that is how we achieved homeostasis for years. But I wouldn't say looking back, was I safe? You know, how did I feel? That wasn't really healthy and that wasn't really connective. So I, I mean, fast forward to when I really got help. And I think you were, you were touching on this earlier about, um, you know, what it looked like for him to find recovery or for me. Yes. I think from the beginning, I never even thought about it as I need to find healing. You know, that wasn't my perspective. Right. It was all about him. It was all about how do we help him? How can I help him? And, and really, if I was hurting, the kind of messages that I played in my head or that I received were, you need to be more forgiving. So it was like healing and forgiveness are synonymous. Like if you forgive, the hurt will go away. And so, you know, 
how can we make what, what happens here more tolerable to you? And, and this is how we support him. Yes. And so, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Emily. No, I'm just re really saying yes a lot because it's resonating with me and taking me back. I had a definite D-Day, huge. And uh, the discovery, you know, even though it was not pornography, it was crushing to me. And uh, I didn't know how to deal. I did not have the resources. And then when you talked about the abuse cycle, I'm not sure if I would uh, label that for me as an abuse cycle, but you feel that uh, trust cycle being broken over and over and over again. So there was really no true recovery during our marriage for him. He found it after. But what I'm saying is I relate and I'm saying yes a lot. Tell me how, when you're in this process, you said for eight years, it feels like eight years you're in this, okay, you're going to do this, you're going to beat this, and then you discover it. He's hiding it from you, obviously, right? Yes. Yeah. So did you feel like, what did he do for the recovery? Was, did he go back to that counselor? Did he, you know, explain his so life? I think, sure, yeah. This looked different at different points in our marriage. So initially it was just like, okay, I got to try harder, right? I mean, I think there's, yes. that's probably for many addicts and many of my friends that have experienced similar things. It's like, well, I'll just try harder. I'll just will power through it. I'll just pray. I'll read my scriptures. I'll go to church and we're going to be good. Yep. And, yeah. <laughs> and no, I'm, not, I'm not alone in that. And then, and then it was like, you really need help. Like I could feel that, like you need help. This isn't working. And I felt that for a very long time. So I feel like that was just part of it, part of that cycle. But I mean, if I, if I asked, most times he would go talk to a bishop. And it was, it was rare, I would say, when I was really included in that. It was like his thing. And uh, it depended on the situation, where we were in our marriage, and, and the particular bishop, really, and how knowledgeable they were on maybe um, pornography addiction. But he would kind of like check in, and here's the things I'm going to do. So there was maybe something that was, I would call it breadcrumbs. It wasn't really recovery effort. There was, there was a more significant point, I would say, at year two when um, I discovered more. I mean, but this was my process. There, there was always more. So, and I can touch on that later, but at that point, I was even like, how can I stay? How can I stay with you? This feels really big. This feels really massive. And he was a little more contrite, like, I'll do anything. He went to talk to a bishop, and this bishop was knowledgeable and said, here's the program. It was the program he had already been in. I want you to do this. And he, and I remember, and I really appreciate it to this day. He said to me, you know, Kira, you have to decide if there's been too much. You, mm -hmm. That's only a choice you can make. You know, he never was presumptuous or saying, okay, here's how you're going to support him. He just, he let me have those feelings of betrayal and, and hurt and acknowledge that there's not trust now. And he even turned to, you know, my husband and said, you know, you have to give her something. She has no reason. She doesn't owe you anything. She has no reason to trust you. And I felt like at that point, okay, I, I think it was like a devastating year, but he worked recovery as far as I knew it for maybe six months. Mm -hmm. And there was still this disconnect. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have words for that then. So really, I needed healing. I didn't know that. So it was all about his healing him and supporting him. And that still wasn't sufficient. And that wasn't going to fix the relationship. I really do think I needed to step into my own realm and acknowledge some of my hurt and betrayal and find healing. Mm -hmm. 
But I think even what he was doing was just trying to make me happy. And it wasn't even sustainable. And we look back now, and, and truthfully, I don't know how sincere or how honest those efforts were then, uh, especially after what we've gone through. So that's what it looked like at one point. And then there was just, I feel like, a downfall after that. He wasn't in the program. It was a difficult time. And we just we went back into this cycle. And I think it hurt more and more. It wasn't like there's, it's not like there's no consequences or you can stay stagnant in that. It's perpetual. And I feel like you feel that wound constantly deepening. And so it was a long time. And really, I didn't find, I didn't find recovery until I found my own therapist. And that was maybe about four years ago. And it's still a process, you know, from there. Mm-hmm. But like I said in the beginning, I didn't even view it as this is something I needed to heal from. And yet I knew I was hurting. It was almost like I didn't have the tools or the resources. And because everything in my world was about him and every resource from him that I knew of was about him, it was like, okay, I just need to forgive, right? I just need to get on board and support him and help him and he'll get through this. So that was kind of that process. So yes, for eight years, (laughs) I mean, I look back and it's easy for me to say, how did you do that? You know, and I think we can all do that as women. I'm sure that there are women listening to this that would say, yeah, I did that. Why did I stay? Or why did I? And I think at that point, we just need to come alongside ourselves with a lot of love and compassion because you don't know what you don't know. And for me, what I, what I say in this is what do you do when you don't know what to do? You just do what you've always done. And that's really where we lived. And I view that as every effort though, I look back on that I made for him. It was from love. And I think so many women, any of us, you know, we're fighting for our families. Nobody wants to divorce, you know? So everything that we're intending to do is right. We're just, we're working with limited tools, you know? Mm. So that's kind of where my own therapy work comes in and then really worth, because I didn't even hear the term betrayal trauma until worth. That was like mind blown. Like what? This is a real thing. I'm not just crazy. Mm-hmm. And Kim, I feel like I'm talking a lot. <laughs> we want you to, Kim. How common is that? You know what? What? What do you say? And how do you work with women who are like, I just need to forgive. You know that the mentality. I'd say, pretty much everyone. Pretty much everyone. That I mean, that is the message that is communicated. Um, is and. It makes sense. We're grasping for what do I have control over? And we're, we're looking back for the messages that we have for, inform, you know, what have we been taught that can help us in this situation? And, um, and so it's common. It's extremely common to say, okay, you know, and, th- and this is where we're getting it from our bishops and we're getting it from our own experience. We're getting it for our, from our families. We're getting it from him sometimes. Um, you just need you just need to forgive, and so we're looking for what we have control over and what we can do, and um, and there is so much power in forgiveness, um, but I think it is it is the message is just let this go, just minimize it, just make it less of a, a deal, and then you won't hurt so much. And that's not the way for healing. That's the way for numbing. It's really, and, and some of us get really good at numbing it yeah. and just putting up painting on a face, but that's not truth. That's not real. That's not authenticity. And you can't get to mm-hmm. healing 
in a way that's false that's where you're denying a huge amount of your own experiences because your experiences your feelings they matter and they and they need to be given on a voice for that healing to be uh, to open the door for that healing and so i think that's what we do and i and listening to kiri's story it's clear why this is called complex ptsd right we think of ptsd as in a you know being involved in one big traumatic event where we're having flashbacks but this is different this is trauma but it's different in that it's a whole series eight years or ten years some of these women it's 30 years of all of these violations and these lies and this these manipulations of reality and there's so much that comes alongside of that where that that sense of there is no safety and so part of that recovery process is it's different where because there are you're if you're still married to that person there are ongoing traumas mm -hmm. and so you have to deal with how do you protect yourself from somebody who's still not in recovery it's not it's not healing from from what is in the past it's trying to cope with what's happening right now in the here and now yes. and ongoing traumas and so um, that's where we, we teach boundaries and protecting yourself. And then ideally you get to a point where he's in recovery and then you, there's this, you can come back together. But if there's never that place where he can't ever be safe, mm -hmm. that really limits it. You, you know, you're married, you're tied to that person. And so that limits your healing, uh, and, and what can happen. So there's a lot of complexity involved and i hope that's one of the messages that's coming through is and every every situation is unique and there's individual components i i can continue with that but i'm going to like go back to you where know, you want that this. complex ptsd i had a listen another listener email me about her story and it was beautiful and um she described that complexity and that trauma as being ran over by her husband in a car and then backed you know, backed up, ran over again, going forward, ran over again. You just, and it painted a very poignant picture. It hurts and it hurts physically and it's hard. And before we go into boundaries, because I, I really want to hit that hard to, to help our listeners who maybe be in, in this particular situation, how in the heck do we, you know, create these boundaries? But before we do that, I, I also want to ask the common, common perception in this is that the spouse feels what's wrong with me am i not pretty enough am i not sexy enough what what's going on am i not giving enough in the bedroom or what whatever and that might be a little personal but kiri did, did you feel those feelings or what are your thoughts on that yeah absolutely um it is common i i think that I haven't met any of my friends that have gone through this that have not wrestled with some of those messages. Yeah, so for me, there is definitely that devastation of these sexual betrayals and all the trauma that surrounds that. And then there's like this aftermath of messages, right? And these maybe beliefs we already had about ourselves, maybe they're being cemented now even more. Um, but yeah, this, this idea, and that was definitely one of my beliefs, that I am not enough. I am not enough, right? Because if I were enough, this wouldn't happen. So I think we can, I was definitely on that loop for a long time. And it, and then at that point, when you're trying to fix that, it just feels like a hamster on a wheel. You're not really getting anywhere because that's not the problem. 
That's not the problem. But I think even, and that took a long time to recognize for me personally, right? This isn't about me. But I think even when, to just honor the pain of all of this, I just feel like even when you understand it's not about you, there's still a, a huge wound and a, a huge, there's a lot of grief because what, what is it then? You know, it, it's still this disconnect of no matter what I did, it, it didn't, or it didn't matter what I did, he still made these choices. I had no control over it. So what did it come down to? And there's just, at that point, I just feel like there's a heaping pile of grief. Because maybe before when we could say it was, it's my fault, we can try and fix it. You know what I mean? It's like, it's almost tangible. Like I can, I can try and fix that. And then we don't really have to own that feeling of betrayal and that grief of, wow, it didn't matter what I did. It didn't matter how, fought, how much I fought, how much I loved. It didn't matter how pretty I was or how kind I was. Or He made this choice. And he made it again and again, no matter how many times I chose him. And that hurts to sit in. I mean, that is a tragedy to sit in that. You know, there is that common um, message that I'm not enough, I'm not attractive. And that is absolutely not true. That is just a debunked myth. But I think beyond that, there's still a, there's still a lot to work through. Even once you have that message, it's not about me. It's not like, poof, the pain is gone. You know what I mean? Because maybe I even, I was always kind of waiting for that when, I, I had a therapist that, you know, once she was talking to me, she's like, you know, this is not about you. This is not about you. And then it was like, but I, I don't feel better. <laughs> I don't feel better yet. So I just feel like there's layers upon layers of, and this, and this can vary just for each woman's experience in their relationship. Um, I think something that I wanted to touch on if I can, and, and feel free to edit whatever you want. But one thing I wanted to say is, you know, in addition to the sexual betrayals, I feel like, yes, I felt you know, the pain and the, the devastation, I'll use that word again, with that. But I think beyond that, for me, my story is this feeling of there's more. There's more. And, and what came into my mind was these questions of, what about when you told me this? Remember when I asked this? And what about when I felt like this? And what about all these times, all these memories, all these things? I thought we were connected and these were special. And now I found out this, what about this? And so even beyond those betrayals, there's, there's more betrayals that, you know, at the time I didn't have language for it. before. It was just, okay, he's lying, but really that's not it. it. This is chronic, you know, the secret sexual life. This is years of now what I understand as, as gaslighting and manipulation. And, and these are things that even, you know, my husband wouldn't have understood that. Yes. I don't know that it was a conscious process or that it always is for every person struggling with that. but. I think when I was able to get that information, it was so validating that, wow, there's another component to this, this integrity issue, that he is just not showing up, as he says. And this, this point where I always feel like I have to choose between trusting myself and him, and now I'm so confused. Like, I couldn't find reality. And so it, I was always waiting for more. And I think that, that, is a, you know, that hurts, too. It's not like I have all the information. The truth is out. I don't remember how many times I heard him say, that's everything <laughs> over these past 10 years, but it, it wasn't. And so I always was left with, there's more, there's more. And I don't know. So I think that goes back to one of the other messages that we can get. And that's, I'm a fool. Like I've been duped. You played me. There's more. And I don't know. So, and I think, I mean, I'm sure Kim can touch on that because yes, this, this can relate to trust, but it's not just about trust because there's this 
this part where he gets to choose if he's going to be a trustworthy person, and then I get to choose what reality I believe. It's a very real thing. And I think long term for most of the women I work with, it, the, the pain and the trauma is, is more related to these searching for the right word. It's not secondary or tangential issues because they are huge issues, but they're, they're often in the shadows, these issues of the lack of integrity. Because what happens is over long periods of time, an individual who does not have confidence in what is real and what their ability to get the truth from their partner, they lose their sense of confidence it's in their own ability to perceive things as they really are. They start to literally feel like they are crazy, like they're flawed, there's something wrong with them, and they don't trust themselves. And so this breakdown of trust is not just about, I can't trust my partner. And Kiri put it beautifully, you have to choose between putting, choosing, trusting your partner and grasping in an attempt to try to feel safe in this relationship that you are in and that you are still choosing to invest in and trusting yourself and your instincts and your uh, your sense that things are not right and this pain is real. And so there's uh, this very involved internal process where we're trying to balance these conflicting needs of, of wanting to attach, of wanting to trust, wanting to feel safe, and our body is saying, there's something going on here. And it, it breaks down um, psychologically our, our, our most valuable, Asset, our confidence in our most valuable asset, which is our own mind. It's very real, and this is, and it's devastating, um, and it's very rarely brought to light or discussed, and yet it's felt so poignantly. So um, that's what, and and often we refer to that as gaslighting, but there's a lot of layers there too. And the other question to come back to is how do you how do you differentiate? This is his, you know, this is about him, not me. I have a love-hate relationship with that idea because <laughs> oftentimes it's it's told to us in a way that minimizes our experience or the experience of women of this is not about you it's you know this is about him it's a way of saying your pain isn't real because you're feeling something that didn't happen and so it goes back to that truck analogy I love that you brought that up because I was thinking about that almost that exact same analogy before we got on and thinking the analogy that I thought of is um, this message that is often communicated to partners that you're, you know, you're oversensitive. This is not a big deal. You're, is like being hit by a truck and then having the driver jump out and saying, I didn't mean to hit you. Therefore, you can't be in pain. Absolutely. <laughs> I didn't intend. I'm not a, don't look at me like I'm a monster because this, it was, it wasn't, you know, and, and that seems ludicrous to us because obviously they're hurting and they're in pain. They got hit. It's not about his intention. It's about the impact, right? The impact of what happened. And when you're worried about an injury, you ask the person who's hurting and you believe what they say, right? If they say, I, you look for blood, obviously, but you also say, where does it hurt? Right? If they're saying my head is ringing and I, I can't, and I'm, you don't say, no, you're making that up. That couldn't happen because I didn't mean to hurt you. I didn't mean to hit you. It was an accident. I was, you know, whatever. So, <laughs> I mean, it's similarly, that's how we treat partners is that we say, we don't see any blood and that he isn't, we don't want to shame the driver. We don't want to shame that driver. So we're not going to address your needs. We're certainly not going to take you to the hospital. And so 
sometimes that message of this isn't about you and i'd say maybe more than sometimes very commonly that message of this isn't about you is another version of saying your experience doesn't matter mm. and i think part of getting over this isn't about you is being heard when you say no this is about me this mm. is absolutely about me this is how it impacts me i need somebody to hear my story i need to be able to speak my truth and use my voice and say, these are the pains that I've experienced. These are the injuries and have, and have careful and empathetic and compassionate care by for a prolonged period of time addressing those injuries. And then we can come around to, yeah, that was the impact and that was real. And now I feel validated for it. And now I can do the cognitive work of separating out the, this is his addiction and this is the compulsive nature of an addiction. And this is how he, why he does it when, and there we could get into all the science about the way pornography impacts the brain and how addiction, there's a ton we could go with that. And that's where you would go. And absolutely an important place for women to understand why he's doing that. So they can separate that out from themselves. So they can say, you know what, that's his choice. And that's not about me. But I don't think most women can do that until you attend to them lying on the street, being having been hit by that car, until you in, address the injury and the feelings and you let her share her story about it. So I don't know if that answered that question. Oh, I thought you did it beautifully. And, and I love that you're sharing your story in the middle of recovery. A lot of people feel like, well, I can't share my story until I can look back into the past and be the hero of you know what I conquered and 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 so I I think that's important and it helps you in your own recovery to have the voice and to be brave and step out into the dark each time we do that we grow I know this sounds like an abrupt ending because it is not there is a part two so please stay tuned for the next episode where we continue to talk about boundaries hope and healing so to be continued people thanks for listening bye